to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. great except i have something here in the office where i record these that keeps beeping and it's been doing so for a few weeks and i can't find it and it drives me uh, crazy i gotta do the same thing i do when i have a noise in my car i can't figure out i gotta turn the radio up well don't bring you, we don't have time for you to to uh, you to bring it to the mechanic so we're gonna have to do roll with the punches as per se a lot of news to talk about this week first i'm going to start off with some box office totals and then we'll bounce into major news at uh, CinemaCon, which was uh, the other uh, few nights in Las Vegas, Nevada. Box office total, Super Mario Brothers continues to rule the roost of the box office. This is good news not only for the industry, but also theater owners. $59 million in the stir week, or at least $436 million. To date, uh, almost $900 million worldwide is still going strong. Now, Evil Dead Rise... million, that's a very solid number for a horror outing. This is a movie that uh, initially was produced, they thought it would go straight to stream. They wound up doing some test screenings. People liked what they saw, got good notices. The studio, which I believe is Universal Pictures, put it into theaters and got a nice return. 24.5 million reviews were like 90-something percent positive on RottenTomatoes.com. Now, The Covenant which is Guy Ritchie's new Afghan war movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. Got to really good exit polls, but steady so-so 6.3 million in business. These are the types of films, Ken, that I think are going to uh, take a little bit of time for people to come back to see. I mean, we clearly see horror movies and popcorn movies, big blockbuster movies, performing extremely well. It's the more character-driven dramas that are having trouble getting some traction in theaters. Now, John Wick 4 plays fourth, 5.8, just a 27% drop-off week-to-week in number five, 169 million to date. That is the best total ever for a John Wick movie. Currently filming the spin-off movie Ballerina in the John Wick universe in which Keanu Reeves will have a cameo appearance. Anna Diamasi uh, will be the lead in that film. And Dungeons and Dragons ran out the top five 5.5, just a 26% drop off week to week. That is a good hold. 82 million in four weeks of releases, doing some business worldwide. Can this be turned into a franchise property? I think the jury is still out on that. And I just want to point out before I talk about this, the movie Air, 
Ben Affleck's new film, uh, 5.4, in weekend number three, a very solid $42 million to date. I got a chance to watch this movie at the Pocono Cinema a few days ago, Ken. I got to tell you, I thought it was really good. Uh, I thought it's the story of Nike, uh, a salesman at Nike played by Matt Damon, who has the idea to go all in and convince uh, the CEO played by Ben Affleck to go all out to try to sign Michael Jordan in a very competitive shoe business where uh, 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 different shoe companies wanted him coming out of college. Uh, They wound up creating Air Jordan. I thought it was a pretty interesting story that moved very well. The pacing was good. The acting was good. Matt Damon, again, terrific. He's great company uh, for any movie. And what I liked about this movie, Ken, uh, Viola Davis, who plays Michael Jordan's mother, I thought was excellent. And the way she played chess with these sneaker companies, the foresight of knowing that her son, Michael Jordan, and I don't want to use the word loosely, but to say he was more than just a man and that she had the vision of knowing he would become a pop culture icon and a visionary basketball player. Uh, The deal she cuts uh, in this movie is is just uh, really interesting history. I thought it was a terrific movie. I'd give it an eight and a half out of 10. So I really did uh, like me some air. Yeah, and it's it's very easy to portray somebody as being visionary after the fact uh, one one wonders you know how much reality is in there and all that stuff but in any you know it was a, it was a great story because michael jordan was not the greatest player to ever play college basketball and as the story goes the last uh, last person to hold michael jordan under 20 points a game was coach dean smith but i think the reason why um, you might see when you talk about people haven't come back to the character driven movies yeah. is that that is what Netflix and the other streaming services are best at the character-driven movies, miniseries, limited series, and series. And I think that might that that's where it's going to be hard to um, to make. You know, that that's where the battle is going to be fought. If you want to ever see those kind of movies get back in the theaters, is it's the people who like the character-driven stuff are also the people that will sit down for four hours a night and uh, get through a a Netflix series in uh, in uh, two days because when I do my little bit later on where I tell you what I've been up to I actually got through two Netflix series this week and when I think of it it's the kind of stuff that used to be great movies well I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you get to that in a second I'm gonna do one more I'm gonna bounce into streaming what I saw on streaming then I'll let you get to that uh, I actually subscribed for the first time to Apple TV uh, first three months free, I believe, and then six ninety nine is the Roku special. And I did it because I did want to see this movie Ghosted with Anna D. Armas and uh, Chris Evans. It's a high-profile, high-concept movie on Apple TV that went straight to the streaming service. Now, it was announced that Apple TV this weekend had their highest premiere to date for a feature film exclusively on Apple, 320,000 viewers watch this movie in his first weekend. That's the most they've ever had. And I and I watched it, and I like Chris Evans, who plays Captain America, and, and Anna Diamas, uh, super appealing. She was Marilyn Monroe in Blonde, and she's got a bright career ahead of her. And she's quite appealing in this film. Having said that, here's my issue with it. It doesn't feel like they tried to make a good movie. It feels like they had two uh, appealing stars, and they just like had, had a, a half-baked, script written on a cocktail napkin at a lunch meeting 
they just put this together. The du- direction seems lackluster at best. I mean, there's some banter. I, I did. There was, I'd say, I don't want to say the chemistry's not good. The chemistry's not great. The chemistry's okay. Uh, and it just felt paint by numbers. I don't know what they spent on this, Ken. I'm assuming this was a decent budget, at least 50 million plus. Uh, here's the thing I hate. I'm going to tell the audience and you what I hate about direct the streaming movies is in high definition with 4K televisions, everything looks too good. Uh, it, it loses the film look and it feels like you're watching almost a movie that is has a soap opera look. I, I don't like it. And and it takes away some of the reality of, of uh, what you see in front of you. I like film. That's why movies in the 70s and 80s that uh, streamed on high definition TVs look great because it still has a film stock look to it. These new movies uh, have that soap opera glare. I don't like that aspect at all. And in this movie, at a, at a one to ten, uh, Ghosted, I, I give a three. I hate saying it. I want. I wanted to like it. She's super appealing. He's likable, but uh, I, I just don't feel they put much of an effort into it. Despite the fact they probably spent a lot of money. They got the return, meaning they got me to subscribe to Apple TV. So uh, is Ghosted worth a look? Well, if you like these two stars, I guess, but don't expect any great shakes because uh, it, 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 it's not a movie that would play well in theaters at all. You, you remind me of the people who uh, are long for the days and they're coming back of vinyl records because... Yeah. You know, no, it's, it's true. Because well, it was, I'm serious. Let me it was a different it's sound. It was a different question. sound. It's a different, it's a different picture. It, 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 just it, it takes something away from losing your belief in the story if it looks too soap opera that's my it's a it, it, there's a reason tv shows were never shot on video although if you look like if you take off the top of my head some of the old twilight zone episodes okay here's another example remember the honeymooners right yes the honeymooners is awesome right remember they found those old episodes in a vault yep they were shot on video they never had the same appeal as the the, uh, the classic episodes because it would that video look. I, I just don't like. I don't like it. You know the one one thing I I point out. And I'm I'm, dis- I'm actually agreeing with you. If you look at the '60s and even in the '70s sitcoms, yeah. which were done in studios, when they would do outside shots, they were yeah. always terrible because yeah. just, they, because they weren't set up for it. And it's it's the same kind no. of thing. No, I, I and I I think that. It, most direct-to-video almost yeah. have the feel of a TV movie. Yeah, but I that's mean, that, it, but that's what we've that's what we've gotten used to. Mm. I mean, I saw I just like when I watch a movie, I want to see it on. Uh, have a, I like a film look? I just like a film look. All right, all right. Hey, I want I want to do one thing because I I don't know if you sure. you probably didn't have this in your deaths or birthdays and all that stuff because he's more of a a musical. He was more of a musical star and an activist, although his mm. music did play uh, very uh, strongly in uh, Beetlejuice, but of course we lost yes. Harry Belafonte this week. We did. And I, yes. I, I, a, a gem of a movie that a lot of people have never heard of. I saw it on, actually first saw it live on the stage in London. It's called Carmen Jones. It is Carmen Bizet's opera, you know, with the <laughs> STP song in it, STP, get your sip now, okay. With the Toreador song, but it is redone, World War II era, blacks in Chicago. Instead of the bullfighter, it's a boxer. You still have Joe, he's, and, and it's, you know, still the same story. 
Harry Belafonte and Dorothy Dandridge. Highly recommended to anybody who's never seen it. And first thing I thought of when I heard that Harry Belafonte died, second thing I thought of, of course, was Beetlejuice. Also, two things that I saw this week I wanted to mention. The first one is Rough Diamonds on Netflix. It is a crime, love, soap opera, eight, eight episodes set in Belgium in the Antwerp Diamond District. Uh, Hasidic Jews are the main characters. And as a, you know, a crime thing, it's so-so. But as a story of you really want to get a feel for the Hasidic Jewish community in the modern world, the modern business world, I found it fascinating. Uh, you know, the, the level of trust between them, but the willingness to, well, you know, to, to cheat others outside the community, almost like we think about the uh, Pennsylvania, the Amish in Pennsylvania. Uh, and the other one, on a couple levels, I wanted to mention, and that was The Diplomat. Carrie Russell is the star. She's the executive producer. And we've gone from a woman playing Veep, and then, then a woman playing Secretary of State. Now we got an ambassador who's going to end up being president in season three, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, Carrie Russell has built upon the dramatic role that she had in The Americans. Uh, Rufus Sewell, who uh, I first really noticed in the man in the uh, the high tower where he played Obergruppenfuhrer Smith. Can you imagine a German spelling bee? That's the only thing I could think of. But <laughs> there, I wanted to mention it because there's a character. First of all, also the president in that movie is played by Michael McKean. And it hit me of all of the people in Laverne and all the people in Laverne and Shirley, I realized yeah. that Penny Marshall had a great career as a director. He had the best career following Laverne and Shirley, and you never would have exactly. thought it. He's been around. He's been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, he went from from Lenny to uh, uh, the the brother of uh, Saul Goodman to now he's uh, the president of the United States. He plays a, an old man who becomes president. That there's questions about whether he's incontinent or not. I don't know where they mm. got that idea from. Me but neither. I, the one the one character I wanted to mention because I think it is a breakthrough in movies and of course now i can't find the page where i have it but i'll just make there is a character in the show who is clearly gender fluid uh, or non-binary i don't not gender fluid non-binary she's clearly they're clearly non-binary the person who plays the role is in fact in real life non-binary the person is in all eight episodes of the show they never once make a point of emphasizing that she's non-binary. If you ask me, that is a huge, huge step forward in our entertainment because now we're comfortable having somebody non-binary as just a character yeah, without making you. their sexuality a character. And I so agree with you. I, I, I do urge people to see that. That was Those were my things for this week. Very good. I'm gonna bounce into some big news, and this is big news. At the CinemaCon in Las Vegas, Warner Brothers, as we talked about on the show, has uh, very high hopes of their new Flash movie, which comes out in theaters June 16th. Now, there was word a few, about a month ago that they were going to show this movie into its entirety almost two months in advance at this CinemaCon, which is basically 4,000 uh, theater owners and a lot of bloggers that attend around the, the country. So they did this the same day. 
they released this, the second coming attraction trailer to The Flash, which I thought was awesome. Uh, then word gets out on social media of a reaction. Now, there is an embargo on what they call full reviews, Ken, but people are allowed to give that out of the theater reaction, uh, which is in agreement uh, with the the, uh, the the terms of, of the studio that lets you watch the movie. And the reaction, for the most part, was through the roof good. Uh, people loved this film. They felt, felt it was very had a very uh, character-driven arc with great action. It was emotionally uh, powerful. Uh, they said Ezra Miller, who's a very troubled guy, who plays Barry Allen, The Flash, was awesome, did the best work of his career playing actually two Barry Allens in this multiverse universe. Michael Keaton, who you can see a lot in the second trailer, clearly he's the co-star of this film, has a big, big role. People loved him. They loved uh, the Supergirl part and the, the whole arc of this thing. The only naysayers I saw where a few people said that the second half was not as good as the first, but overall, tremendous buzz. I've never seen since I've been doing, uh, covering anything on in the world of film, I've never seen a studio, other than a small, you know, art house independent movie, I've never seen a big popcorn movie premiered so early uh, before its theatrical date, which tells you Warner Brothers really does like this film immensely. Uh, it is a superhero movie. Uh, how much juice is left in this genre? Uh, I think this will be huge, this movie, based on what I'm seeing uh, and hearing off this screening. Um, I think it's good for theaters. I'm glad the studio has massive confidence in this movie. They could, you know, since it's Flash and they could play with timelines, they could take DC in any direction they, they want. One caveat, according to the, the reports of the screening, no end credits, meaning they left it open. And they did say it's not a complete final cut, but they left the end credits open, meaning they could attach anything they want at the end of the film to take what they do in, a, in the direction they want to go. Will Keaton never be back as Batman again? I, I think eventually will, because I think this movie's going to be so popular, people will clamor for a Batman Beyond. Mike, give, give me more Michael Keaton as Batman. I, I got to tell you, Ken, I, I'm actually very excited. Just like re, like the type of excitement I have to see The Flash June 16th is the, the type of excitement that I've had a, a handful of times in the last 20 years. Jurassic Park, uh, it was the first Avengers movie, probably Endgame, a few others. But I am truly, in all sincerity, very excited to see The Flash. I can't wait. And uh, who would have thunk it? A uh, superhero movie that everybody wants to see. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, sort of like, it, it, I know that's a cold joke, but it's sort of, it's true. It's sort of like a, a rebirth of of something that feels like it's starting to lose luster. I mean, how much can you do with this genre? But, uh it feels like they've done something good here, so I'm excited. I, other, I, I'd love uh, to see it. I'd love to see it do well because you know I, Michael Keaton's had a very un, un uh, even career, and I was always a big fan. I am a huge fan. Going back to uh, uh, Night Shift, uh, which I love that movie. That was an '80s film, uh, clean and sober. Beetle. I, I love Michael Keaton. I'm a big fan. So uh, I, I again, I, I can't wait. Some other news or a trailer released. Uh, Universal Pictures released its uh, trailer to Equalizer 3, the third and final entry from Denzel Washington as Robin McCall, uh, directed once again by Anton Fugner, comes out in September. The storyline takes place in Italy and has McCall battling the Italian mob. Uh, very violent trailer, but I gotta tell you, I love Denzel Washington. I think he's one of the greatest actors who ever ever lived. You can read a phone book and I find him interesting. Uh, I look forward to to this film. I like the last two installments. I, I wish it was, as I stated this to Mike many times in the program, 
I just wish the concept of equalizing in film doesn't have to be as big as they did the first two movies with a main. You don't need a, uh, a a huge popcorn villain. Just give me Denzel Washington in subtle scenes and, and keep it low key, and I think that works perfectly. But again, they're going bigger. Uh, that comes out in September. I don't know if you have thoughts on Denzel or the Equalizer franchise, but uh, there you have it. I know I, I I like I like Denzel as well, and I like the Equalizer. So. Uh... And it's you know again those are the, the those are the kind of things that do draw some of the old people back in because he's been around for a while and we know him and those are the kind of movies that could do well with the old people like yes, me. Yes, I mean, and you, now you get you're getting again the revival of action stars. You got Keanu Reeves and who's almost sixty and you've done gangbusters with John Wick. Each installment getting stronger. Denzel Washington, who I think, is going to be sixty-eight. Uh, you know, does action really well in this franchise uh you know we grew up with charles bronson in those b movies uh so and then obviously liam neeson took that mantle with taken so i I like i like this stuff a lot some other news of interest uh the new uh, read the reboot not reboot but yeah it's sort of like a reboot sequel it's a direct sequel to the exorcist which comes out october 13th has a title x the exorcist believer uh bloomhouse in uh and uh, Warner Brothers releasing this film. Uh, it's, it's They paid $400 million, Ken, for The Exorcist to do more Exorcist movies for a trilogy. $400 million. It's a lot of money, a lot of money. Uh, uh, the same guy who did uh, uh, the, the, the Halloween reboot, uh, David Allen Greer, David Allen, uh, I forget his name. But anyway, uh, he's doing this he had he had mixed success with the Halloween franchise. The last installment was not well received. I sort of liked it for a different reason. I thought it it, it worked to a point, but uh, you know, Exorcist is not Halloween. I think it's it's a it's a different different uh, type franchise. I hope it turns out well. Ellen Burstyn they brought back was I think like ninety years old to re- reprise her role from the original film. That's where they book in. So direct sequel to the original film. They're gonna not uh, acknowledge two, three, and four, even though three is a great movie. But uh, Exorcist, uh, The Believer, October 13th in theaters, Ken. Uh, uh, first of all, Ellen is exactly 90 years old. 90 years old. And, and, and okay. second, secondly, I, I, I'm wrong quite often. I'll be surprised. It's if David it, Gordon Green, by the way. Okay. Yeah. I'll be surprised if it's, a, if it's a blockbuster hit because I'm not sure exorcism is the thing that is going to is going to, it's you know exorcism isn't necessarily going to dra- draw the uh superhero it's, crowd it's been done a lot it's been done a and lot it's been done a lot the pope's exorcist right the, the, Crow, it, it did mediocre there's and there's a religious aspect to it and most people these days when they think of exorcism think and uh, so you know come on that's religion we don't believe in him besides there's probably more satan worshipers today than ever so they're going to be rooting for the devil Here's the thing, you know, it's a good point, and before we, we get into our main topic, which is our top 10 favorite movies uh, that we think have relevance from the 1980s, I was driving home with a buddy last night, we were talking about the subject of The Exorcist and his new title, and I was saying to him that the reason I think The Exorcist hit such a nerve in in, uh, in 1973, because the, it was a product of its time, great movie, one of the rawest movies ever shot, uh, an amazing movie to me, one of the greatest movies ever made. But the reason that movie's so good, I think it, the 70s where the decade, uh, the, the time period in America, uh, people were more religious. Um, I, I think the, the, con- 
concept of possession uh, and exorcism was, was, is a frightening thing, uh, especially to harden, more hardened believers of the 70s than it would be of, of the more uh, secular, skeptical world of 2023. So yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I don't think no matter how good this film is, it, it'll have the same effect. And no matter how good the film is, it will not be. It will not be anywhere near what William Friedkin did with The Exorcist in 73, because you, you're talking about one of the greatest movies ever, and I mean ever produced horror or any other genre. And, and be, it's, it's just a great movie. Yeah, and remember in 1973, we actually thought we had somebody possessed in the White House. So you know, that, of course, was still President Nixon. And I, I, I always forget to mention this, but I, I really should. When yeah. we talk about The Exorcist or that, or that championship season, Jason Miller, who, of course, was a great. great actor. He, oh. is, he was a Scranton native. I actually yes, yes. was taught, I was actually taught high school English by his sister. I just wanted to mention wow, that. okay. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, he donated a lot of his time to do what he did in Scranton. I, I think, to me, the guy was great. He was uh, known as Fabi Father Karras, one of my favorite characters of all time in The Exorcist. And he was simply, he was really good in Rudy. Uh, uh, as the as Notre Dame uh, f- football coach. I, I thought he was uh, terrific in, in, in that movie. Great, great actor. He had a lot of issues in his real life with substance drinking. Uh, that is a story for a different day. But I, I was definitely a big fan of his, his career. Absolutely. Okay, some, we'll do some birthdays and some this day in, in TV history before we bounce into our main topic. Here we go. Birthday of interest. This week, Carol Burnett turns 90 years old. I think they just had a, a, a show on, on CBS, uh, about, or ABC, actually, uh, about her, her life that was taped a few months ago, aired this week. And I said on another spot that I did with the host, he said to me, why isn't that airing on CBS? She, Carol, the Carol Burnett show was a CBS show. I don't know the answer. is a good question. But Carol Burnett, in an interview, said she's 90, but I feel like I'm seven. Your thoughts on Carol Burnett? I saw Carol Burnett once live on Broadway. Of course, I saw her you know, 10,000 times on television. And right. it was so magical. But she comes out, she crawls. What did she do? What was, it? what was the performance? You know, I can't think of it now. It was a comedy. Um, it, and How it, many years ago? It was the 1990s. 1990s. Okay. Um, okay. And she came out before the, before the show. She crawls out. Crawls out from underneath the uh, curtain, comes and sits on the side the side of the uh, stage, pulls out her phone, starts talking on her cell phone, and then gives the cell phone speech. But she she's just a, was a magical magical entertainer, and uh, yeah, I, you know, somebody who uh, to me when you there's there's two blue bloods still around. You know, it's Carol Burnett, there's Dick Van Dyke. Carol's turning ninety this year. Yeah. Dick bought a new television this week. You know, it's actually, it's, it's so cool to see people at that age going, still, you know, clear thinking, working, doing good things, uh, spreading a positive No, the, the, the cool, the cool thing is he, he and his wife are out shopping, buying a new television. It wasn't your 65-inch television, by the way. She's carrying it because, you know, she's only in her 50s. He's 97. And, you know, they take it to the car. And he went, they went out to buy a new television because he's doing a short-term guest spot on one of the soap operas. Yeah, I saw that too. But it was neat seeing, because who would have thought that Dick Van Dyke went and bought his own television set? Pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. That. Okay, let's, let's bounce into a few more. April 26, 1992, 
last episode's air of both Growing Pains and Who's the Boss. And Who's the Boss ran for, I think, eight seasons. Uh, Tony Danza, Alyssa Milano. I watched both of them. I, I, I enjoyed both of those sitcoms, and they both ended this uh, April 26, 19. 92. Thoughts on any of those two shows? I was a bigger fan of Growing Pains, I think, but they were both good shows. Okay, now this is outside movies, but still relevant in pop culture. April 29th, 1961, the premiere of ABC's Why World of Sports on ABC. Here's what I remember about, and it was big in the day. I remember all the evil Knievel stuff on ABC's Why World of Sports. Remember that stuff? I do, but you know, the thing that I remember is that poor ski jumper who fell 6,742 times in the opening, the same ski jumper. But that was that was at a time we didn't have ESPN. We didn't no. have cable. That's how we no. saw the Harlem Globetrotters. That's how we saw yes, surfing. That. That's how we saw a lot of sports that we not otherwise even wouldn't Muhammad have seen. Ali, even, even I think, even Muhammad, even they covered, they must have covered a few Muhammad Ali boxing matches they, too, they did. They did indeed. I believe the one that he lost to Kenny Norton was on Wide yeah. World of Sports. And obviously the voice of Wide World of Sports, that was, for me, Howard Cosell. Uh, Howard and then Jim, what's his name, yeah. Jim McKay, right? Jim McKay, Jim McKay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, both of us, and that, that stuff was part of America's pop culture. But again, April 26, 1961, it all started. Uh, here's a little, uh, let's go to uh, April 30th, 1989, Siskel and Ebert do their 500th review show on television. Talk about two people who had a massive part of America pop culture, really came out of nowhere. I, I, I could not, to me, Siskel and Ebert were must-see must viewing. It was also for Mike, we, we both loved watching those, those guys do their thing. They had unique chemistry. I, I both went out in a bad way. Uh, no longer on this earth, but uh, I was a huge fan of Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, I, I followed both of them for a long time in the Chicago papers, and... Uh... They were uh, they, when I was living out there in South Bend, and the the coach, by the way, in Rudy's, his name was Ara Parsegian. Yes, Ara Parsegian. Yeah, you can't. You know, the, our people in Fort Wayne would wonder if we didn't know the name of the coach. So I just want to mention that. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, last thing: some pop culture. April thirtieth, nineteen seventy-seven. This week in history, superstar Billy Graham defeats Bruno Sammartino to become the WWF champion. I remember Billy Graham, a great heel, uh, muscled up. Who knows where that event took place? It definitely wasn't on a, any pay-per-view. Uh, it was probably at a local Madison Square Garden or somewhere around the country. The belt changed, changed hands. I mean, you know, before Hulk Hogan uh, and, and, the, and then what came after him, I mean, Bruno Sammartino was wrestling, but one of his opponents that also was very popular was superstar Billy Graham. So he won the WWF championship belt April 30th, 1970. Seven kid. Remember Billy Graham? I do remember Billy Graham. And back then, you usually didn't know that somebody had changed titles until you watched no. the wrestling two Saturdays later. Exactly. I mean, sometimes it would be in the newspaper. If you looked in a certain part of the newspaper, it would be a very low write-up. But uh, again, you know, you go back to the 70s before pay-per-view and before the world got a lot bigger. You know, wrestling basically was a grassroots Entity, uh, you know, when he when he when he did Madison Square Garden cards in New York, that was bigger. But you know, did the Meadowlands and a lot of a lot of shows in Connecticut, and uh, that got it off the ground. But uh, but again, uh, Bruno Sammartino 
was uh, a huge part of why wrestling is as big as it is uh, today. Uh, anything else before we bounce into our main topic, Ken? I am good. All right, our main topic of the week uh, is going to be our top 10 movies that we enjoy, we think have a legacy, we like a lot. They don't have to be the greatest movies of all time, but these are the ones we like, 10 through 1. I'll start with my 10 through uh, 6, Ken, and then I'll let you take over the reins. My number 10, I went with Field of Dreams, because I think this is a one of the great everyday uh, man, interesting movies that roll the dice on a unique script uh, on paper this movie could have went either way the way it turned out i think it's a classic uh i, I love this movie kevin Costner, who you could argue at that point in his career was a jimmy stewart of his generation james earl jones awesome ray lietta awesome concept magical i think has one of the best last five minutes in the history of film so field of dreams is my number 10 number nine i went with the shining from 19 19- 80. Uh, again, I did this revival of this movie about five years ago at the Pocono Cinema, first time watching on the big screen. As I was watching, watching, I kept saying to myself, wow, this movie's unbelievable on a big screen. Hypnotic, thought-provoking, just a great cinematic experience that few films can even come to that equal. Nicholson, du- Duval, Scamman Crothers, great cast, great setting, uh, Kubrick's vision, his his detailed work put the actors through a ringer, but The Shining turned out to be, in my opinion, a masterpiece. That's my number nine. Number eight, uh, how about 1987? Let's go with Fatal Attraction, Adrian Lin's movie that hit a nerve, and they don't make movies, Ken, like this anymore. People literally would go back to this movie week after week, had massive legs at the box office. It was something some people didn't want to see. Uh, very uh, in in terms of do you root for Michael Douglas don't you root for Michael Douglas Glenn Close was unbelievably uh, psychologically complex is a female character uh, this was an audience favorite I love this movie I think it's one of the best of the 80s certainly one of the most popular that's not my number 8 number 7 I'll go to 1984 James Cameron's original Terminator I think this is a groundbreaking movie that has every bit of greatness when you watch it today. Linda Hamilton, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, just a, simply a terrific movie. And you could see Cameron's vision. You could see how they could do things without the technology that, that they have now. A lot of practical effects. It's just a great movie from beginning to end. So my number seven. My number six, I went with Back to the Future from 1985. A perfect film from beginning to end. Robert Zemeckis directed, Steven Spielberg produced. Everybody knows the story. Eric Stoltz was originally Marty McFly. Film half the movie doesn't. They don't feel produces Spielberg and directed Zemeckis that he had the chemistry that uh, that they they wanted in terms of of comic comic relief. They went back to Michael J. Fox because they needed him. Uh, they wanted him originally, went back, worked out a deal with Family Ties producer, get Michael J. Fox. His chemistry with Christopher Lloyd is electric, and the rest is movie history. So Back to the Future is my uh, number six. That's my 10th or 6th, Ken. I agree with, uh, and I would agree with all all of those. Uh, now, of course, I did the same thing I did last week. I picked one per year, and these are these are okay. the movies I'm taking with me when I go away. I, I'm going away to that island, and I'm going to watch these movies from 1980s. The first one, uh, because for ten I'll do eighty because that's the one that ends in zero. Um, I have to go 
with Harold Ramis as the director, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Ted Knight, Rodney Dangerfield, Brian Doyle Murray is one of the writers of the movie. And of course, that was Caddyshack, probably one of the best sports films and one of the best movies about golf. That and uh, and uh, Happy Gilmore are probably the two uh, golf movies that most people know. Uh, somehow serious golf movies like Tin Cup and that have never, I think, caught the imagination quite the way the Caddyshack did. So I'm going to go with Caddyshack as my number 10. Just a great movie. And the, guy, the guys were hitting, they were hitting on all cylinders. And I watch a lot of clips at night on, uh, on uh, Facebook and that. And Rodney Dangerfield, the, that, that guy was a comedic genius. And oh, it, he was. I mean, I thought we talked about back to, back to school, but... Yeah, Caddyshack, he's just equally as funny. Uh, he was a unique persona, put him in the right thing and uh, wind him up, and you'd never laugh harder. For, nine, for my number nine, this is from 1989, I'm going to do something. Is it, because every time you mention back, or bad, bad news bears, I say, oh, that's, that, don't mention that. That was the first wife I saw with the uh, first movie I saw with my first wife. This was the movie that my first wife and I went to on our 10th anniversary. And we didn't get to see many movies in the first 10 years because we tended not to have a babysitter. But my grand, my, my mother-in-law actually would babysit the kids. We went to dinner and a movie. It was uh, Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams, okay. uh, Ethan Hawke. It, to me, it's not the world's greatest movie. But for one thing, hey, it's a movie that I remember because I can associate with it. I went, I went to see that with my, with my wife on our 10th anniversary, just like I will always remember um, the Hunt for Red October was the last movie I saw before I found out I was going to England for three years. So you remember these kind of things, but it was it was a very good movie, and it was I think Robin Williams was his best when he played his comedic talents in a drama, as opposed to his comedic talents in a pure comedy, because the guy was wonderful at being quirky. Oh, I, I agree, and I, I think uh, a lot of comedic talents, given the right dramatic role as he got here, hit a home run. My, no, my number eight, it gave us the, the songs, Wind Beneath My Wings and The Glory of Love. It's probably the tearjerker movie of the 1980s. If Love Story was the one everybody cried about in the 70s, Beaches was the movie everybody cried about in, uh, in the 80s. Of course, you had Bette Midler, you had Barbara Hershey. I didn't realize that you had Mayim Bialik in it. Uh, and that was even before she... And that was even before she was whoever it was that she played on, on television. And before, she, of course, before uh, Jeopardy as well. But just a great tear-jerking movie. A movie of, of people getting back together. Forgiveness and just some great music. And, I, you know, I, was, I think somebody who we've underestimated for years as a talent in this world whether acting or musically, is Bette Midler. And so oh, I really yeah, loved it. Bette Midler is great. I got to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of this film. It just, I, I, it, it was a hit. I remember it was a hit. I remember watching it. It just felt, I guess I was the wrong audience. I thought it was manipulative. And I, hey, I'm not one of those people that complain about that aspect of, 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 of film being manipulated. I'm cool with that if, if it moves me. But I, I just, I'm not a fan. And hey, you're, the critics agreed with you. The critics hated it. And the fans loved it. Go, go figure. 1987 gave me my number seven movie. Hey, it's this guy that uh, I might have heard of him, Robin Williams. Uh, he plays uh, a, the real-life Adrian Cronauer on Armed Forces Radio Services. Um, it is, of course, set in Saigon. It is Good Morning Vietnam. Probably, to me, 
first of all, Cronauer Cronauer was great as uh, he was the Howard Stern of Armed Forces Radio. And Armed Forces Radio was meant to be, you know, just upbeat for all the soldiers. People don't realize, but in Vietnam, most of the time, most soldiers spent most of their time in Vietnam sitting in their base. And so they were bored. They were smoking. They were drinking. They had, you know, the local women with them. The, so this music was meant to be up the, upbeat and keep them going. He came in and decided he was going to be Howard Stern. Most of what Robin Williams does during Good Morning Vietnam, you will not find written in any script anywhere. He improvised almost every radio sure. broadcast. And to me, this was, I mean, and, and Williams won a Golden Globe. He was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor. This was Robin Williams at his best, uh, playing Adrian Cronauer in Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, I can't just he was great and he was great in those in those in that, that that movie was a, a perfect fit for his acting and his manic uh, style also a really good role he got you you hate my number six so I'll just say it quickly uh, my number six from 1986 and, you know it's a teen comedy my kids loved it I've seen it a hundred thousand times with them you know it, and it had of course uh, Alan Ruck it had Matthew Brock Broderick Mia Sarah Jennifer Grey Je- Jeffrey Jones Cindy Pickett always a big Cindy Pickett fan and even Edie McClurg you know you can't go wrong with Edie McClurg but uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off there's no way it fits in a school day there's no way you could do all of that in one day but still I, I liked it and you know when you talk about making money five million dollar budget 70 million dollar gross oh, no, listen, and no, probably yeah. done more than 70 million since then oh it's just got to be one of the most popular films on uh on the digital uh or blu-ray whatever dvd format I, as i said on this program i'm not the biggest fan of it because i just found the character of ferris so so obnoxious uh that i have issues with it but i know his popularity and, it, and it's a well-made movie that has a lot of pop culture uh significance to this uh, day, and you know, interesting trivia question of what two movies in 1986 uh, had the song uh, "Twist and Shout" in it, and one was Ferris Bueller, and the other was "Back to School," which Rodney sang himself. Uh, good picks, Ken. Okay. My number five, I'll go with. Uh, I'm going to go with Batman. We're going to do these one at a time. Batman from 1989. One, it's an amazingly significant cultural film in the histories of, of pop lore. Uh, it was the first film to play on over 2,000 screens, first movie to hit $50 million in its opening weekend, and also changed the way movies are marketing hands down. No movie was had a bigger marketing campaign that launched a movie than Batman in 1989. I thought the movie was a flawed, uh, fascinating film. I think Jack Nicholson was awesome as a Joker. Yeah, there's a little too much of him. I would have liked to see maybe one or two more scenes of Batman to counteract all the screen time the Joker got, but Keaton was terrific as Bruce Wayne Batman. Nicholson was awesome. Some of the sequences in this movie are so still some of my favorites. Batman coming through the sky, sky atop at the Fugelheim Museum to save Vicki Vale. Where does he get all those wonderful toys? To this day, still uh, some great, great filmmaking by Burton. I mean, some of it, you know, uh, is not paced overly well, but overall, I dig this movie tremendously. Uh, so Batman's my number five from 1989, Ken. My number five from 1985. It is directed by Opie Cunningham himself, Mr. Ron Howard. And I mean, I I, I have to go through the, the cast in this one because it's it's a movie about old people. You have Don Amici, who, uh, of course, uh, uh, 
um, was an Academy Award nominee or winner, actually a, a winner for a supporting actor. Wilfred Brimley, Hugh Cronin, Hume Cronin, Brian Denny, Jack Guilford, Maureen Stapleton, Jessica Tandy, Gwen Verton. You also had Steve Gutenberg and Berlin, Maryland's own Linda Harrison. It was a science fiction alien movie where the aliens helped us out, or at least helped these old people out. It's about the, the search for eternal youth as I get older. I like this movie. Cocoon from 1985. If you want to watch a movie that is heartwarming, that's fun, that's interesting, that has a little drama, but is, for the most part, clean. There's a little bit of elderly sex that goes on, but hey, that happens. A great movie. Uh, I think a movie that we've uh, forgotten about over the years. There was a remake, or not a, re- a sequel, in 1988, yeah. but Cocoon from 1985 is my number five. Actually, Courtney Cox is in the sequel, but uh, yeah, it brought back a lot of the original cast. I, listen, this movie is very good. It was a big hit. It filled multiplexes. I mean, people want you know people pack multiplexes, or it's just two two duplexes back like probably two screen theaters back in, uh, in in the eighties to see this movie. It was very well received. Good pick. My number four. Uh, I, I went with another James Cameron movie. I went with Aliens from '86, one of my all-time favorites. This would be in my top twenty-five best movies of all time. Sigourney Weaver uh, basically defined female heroism. One of the great female action heroes of all time, Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, little girl who played Newt. Her chemistry with with Sigourney Weaver is 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 just great. I mean, it's a powerful emotional bond. The effects are fantastic. And what's great about this movie, when you think it's over, it's not over. It tops itself. When you think that's over, it tops itself. When you think that's over, it tops itself. I mean, Cameron, brilliant. This is a brilliant movie. Exciting, uh, thought-provoking from a corporate level. Aliens. You know, Ridley Scott's Aliens is really good. James Cameron's Aliens is a masterpiece. So, my number four. Aliens from 1986. A, a movie's unforgettable if we know it by one word or one phrase. If I say wax on, wax off, the entire world knows I'm talking the Karate Kid. Uh, it was written by Robert Mark Kamen, uh, who actually was approached to write the movie, and they wanted him to write a movie that was similar to director John Alvidson's earlier movie called Rocky. And when you yeah. think of it, there are a lot of similarities between The sure, Karate sure. Kid and Rocky. And of course, it also had a young uh, Elizabeth Shue, so that's enough for me yes. anyway. But Pat Morita, yeah, we, we'll, we'll always know him as Arnold, but he was absolutely fantastic in The Karate Kid. And it's one of those movies that I probably watched a hundred times with my kids. So that was my number four. I'll tell you a story about The Karate Kid. I love that film. I saw it. I saw it. Ten times in a movie theater, and I and it was playing at the Avenue Theater, now defunct Avenue Movie Theater, Brooklyn, New York. And I remember Ken, I liked the ending of this movie so much. I would pay, I would time it, and I would pay. In those days, you know, single screen theater, they didn't care when you walked in, right? right? So I would pay to walk in in the last act, and I watch it again. But so I got the ending twice in each showing. And uh, I, I talked about this on the show. One of the best experiences I've ever had in my life doing anything film-related was when I got John Alvison, the director, to do a taped introduction at the Pocono Cinema. And he said in that introduction that the studio wanted a Japanese actor to play Miyagi. And they had their eyes picked on a popular actor. But he, Alvison, did a screen test with Marita, who is known for basically playing um, uh, Arnold, right? On, yep. um on Happy Days, and uh, the studio was like, no, 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 and, and Allison was was hell-bent 
on saying, you know, this is the guy for the role, and he convinced the studio to do it. Pat Morita obviously became a uh, very popular personality with his role of Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid. Yeah, it's, it's listen, it's, it's a uh, one of the great pop culture movies of all time, hands down, in that great year of 1984, by the way. Uh, my number three, good pick, Ken. My number three, I went with The Empire Strikes Back from 1982. This is where you knew Star Wars was uh, was was going to be something beyond the first film. Erwin Kirchner uh, came on to direct. A different vision than George Lucas took this material into a darker area. Movie ends with the greatest cliffhanger paths in movie history. Han Solo in Carbonite. Uh, the soap opera elements of this become more fleshed out, leaving audiences with their mouth open, gasping. Couldn't wait to see more. This movie was uh, tight in tone. They bring on Billy Dee Williams as Lando Calrissian. Uh, very fast, quick, tightly paced, darker elements. Great movie. Empire Strikes Back is my number three. Okay, I'm going to do my number three quick because I want to save some time before we run out of time. Sure. When, I, when I do my number one because I want to sp- spend a little bit of time on number one. Number number three, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, Trading Places. It was just a fantastic movie. movie. You can't beat it. That's I my agree. number three. We've talked about it a few times in the past. Yeah, my number two, I went with Die Hard. I still think it's the greatest pure action movie ever made. The script was a miracle. The casting of Bruce Willis as John McClane was miraculous. The guy was born to play that role. Uh, they get uh, Alan Rickman in his first theatrical movie as Han Gruber. What a great villain. John McTiernan uh, couldn't do a better direction job. But to me, this is a perfect action film from beginning to end, an iconic piece of cinema that will stand the pest to test of time. So Die Hard from 88 is my number two. Also saw that movie 10 times in a movie theater. Had a blast on each and every showing with a good, sizable audience that really reacted extremely well uh, and ate every minute of this movie up. My, my number two, I mean, he, he had a, for a brief time, Louis Gossett Jr. was, you know, you, you had Iron Eagle. You had some other things he did. Well, he also did An Officer and a Gentleman in 1982. Um, he would, of course, uh, get the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. I really yes. think this is one of those movies where I think the supporting actor actually outshone Richard Gere in many ways. Deborah Winger. Deborah Winger was nominated for uh, Best Actress. Great movie. Great. And of course, in, uh, up where we um, belong is the uh, song that won the Academy Award. Uh, and just a great film. Uh, an uplifting film, but also a, a gritty film at times. I always liked it. Like the you know Deborah Winger before she went crazy was a, a pretty a pretty interesting star. So an officer and a gentleman. Also Robert Loggia was in it. Can't forget that from 1982. Listen, I, I, I didn't see it in the theater. I watched it on uh, I think it was like WHT, one of the streaming services with the TV antennas back in the day before they called it streaming. I'm a big fan of it. I agree. Louis Gossett Jr. was awesome in that movie. Uh, that's a good pick. My number one, no-brainer for me. I, I went with, like, The Wizard of Oz is one of the greatest films of the 1930s. E.T., The Extraterrestrial, to me, is the best film of the 1980s, simply because it has an emotional power to it that very few films have. It's a love letter by Steven Spielberg to a mass audience. The character of E.T. is just awesome. A huge fan favorite. Uh, the resurrection scene, to me, uh is one of the greatest, most powerful emotional sequences in the history of film. Highly enjoyable, massive hit, deserved every penny it made. Uh, I love this film, E.T., no doubt, my number one. 
My number one has huge historical significance. Now, when I first heard this movie, hey, I really wanted to see it because I wanted to see a biopic about Nancy Sinatra. You know, these boots are made for walking. Dot's boot is made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. Dot's boot's going to walk all over you. Dot's boot, 1981, from West Germany, foreign language film, would not be released in the United States until the following year. Um, it was, you know, when, when the Academy Awards were up, it was one of those things you keep saying, what, what, you know, what's this thing that was nominated for six awards? What's this, this movie about a boot? You know, it's about shoes. The reason why Das Boot, to me, is so powerful and so important, it's about life on a German submarine, on and off, a German submarine, from a German perspective. The first real movie that we had received about World War II from a German perspective, it was a, a generation after the war ended. It was equivalent to 1987 would be to us today. So if we did a movie about the first Gulf War, so there's still a lot of people around with memories of it. And for once, we didn't see German soldiers as just people that were mindlessly bayonetting babies. They were people that, one, didn't necessarily like Hitler because most of them weren't Nazis. They had a Nazi spy on board that kept them all in line. And, you know, when they torpedo a British ship and then torpedo it again to finally sink it and realize, oh, there were still people on that ship. Okay, they can't stop and pick them up. But in an American-made movie, if we made it in the 1940s, they would have been cheering at the people dying in the water. This movie showed, you know, these German uh, mariners, they felt remorse for the fact that they couldn't rescue these people from the water because one thing that's true is that sailors have this bond with other sailors it's a great movie because it started marking that transition to where we were going to see world war ii in movies in a realistic way rather than in the jingoistic propaganda way that we saw them in the 40s so that's why das boot is my number one for 1980s that's a really really good pick i just want to point out real quick because we're running out of time me and mike have talked about the subject of Wolfgang Peterson, who directed this movie. Very interesting filmmaker. What's interesting, he did Das Boot, and in his last theatrical film, and it was Poseidon, the remake of the Poseidon Adventure. The only one in his legacy, Poseidon, that had no character development. Why he did that, I'll never understand, because he was a great director, especially action. Wolfgang Peterson, Air Force One, to Perfect Storm, uh, In the Line of Fire, Troy, Das Boot. The guy made terrific, terrific movies. And there was a two and a half hour cut of Poseidon in the vault of Warner Brothers. They cut it down to 90 minutes. Warner Brothers, if you're listening, please, I want to see that two and a half hour version of Wolfgang Peterson's Poseidon, not just the 90 minute one. But you're right, Ken, that's a good pick. And, and, and I, I'm very fascinated by his career. And they, 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 killed, they killed his unreleased sequel, Das Sandal, but that's okay. <laughs> Uh, again, that's 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 humor to the audience that you take it or leave it. I like the Ken. Good hey, joke. Hey, Chuck, so, it's been a great week. The audience got to hear me sing even, so what do you know? And that, and that is always a big plus. Ken, always a pleasure to the audience. Thanks for listening, and we will see you, Movie Maniacs, same time next week. Bye, Chuck. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts.
podcast by Federated Media.